Did you know that within a decade, women will hold $30 trillion in investable assets? Yet somehow, only 19% of women reported feeling confident in selecting investments that align with their long-term goals. Our friends at InvestHer are out to change that. InvestHer Con is the number one premier conference for women in real estate, and it's happening June 2nd through the 4th in Austin, Texas. InvestHerCon is not just another real estate conference. It's a transformational experience focused on real estate investing, business strategies, and self-care tactics, all designed to help women take control of their financial futures. Gain the knowledge and skills you need to grow your portfolio and build a sustainable business, all while connecting with over 500 women who are playing at the same level. To learn more and to get your tickets, visit InvestHerCon.com today and use the code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. That's InvestHer, H-E-R, Con.com, promo code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. They quit their job. They'll never get another one. When I quit my job, I figured worst case, I'll just go get the same job, but at a different company. So I think a mindset is a huge advantage, especially when you're on your own as an entrepreneur. We got to be mentally strong. Welcome to the Best Ever Show, the world's longest running daily commercial real estate podcast. Our hosts interview commercial real estate experts every day to get you the best advice ever with none of the fluffy stuff. Best ever listeners, welcome to the Best Real Estate Investing Advice Ever Show. I'm Slocum Reed, and today I'm joined by Drew Brenneman. Drew is joining us from Austin, Texas. He's the founder of Brenneman Capital, which invests in value-add multifamily primarily in core plus markets like Chicago, Dallas, Austin, and Phoenix. Their current portfolio is about $220 million in value. That's 28 buildings, 22 of them being multifamily in Chicago, Phoenix, and then six commercial buildings in Minneapolis. They've also gone full cycle eight times. Drew, can you tell us a little bit more about your background and what you're currently focused on? Yeah, thanks for having me, Slocum. I've been a big fan of the podcast for quite a while, so happy to be here. Yeah, I started out buying my first deal when I was 19, just with my own money. I house hacked it back in 2005. And then from there, I majored in real estate and just have, I invested in a bunch of different product types, like you were talking about retail, office, industrial, multifamily. I just specialize in multifamily now with my company, Brendan Capital. And just kind of kept working my way up from the duplex, you know, eventually to a three unit, then to a shopping center. And then more recently, we've done some bigger multifamily deals, at least bigger for us, a $13 million one, a 25 and a $33 million deal. So, I mean, that's kind of it in a nutshell. Yeah. I think in addition to what you said, one thing I'm proud of is we've done 13 full cash out refinances. So across the 30 or so buildings we bought on about half of them, we've been able to raise the income and the NOI enough where we've been able to put a new loan on the property and in an amount like equal to or greater than what we have into the property. So we've been able to refinance out all the equity. Nice. You mentioned the sizes of the last three acquisitions you've had. When were they and where are they? Two of them are in Chicago. So that $13 million one we bought right before the pandemic hit in 2020. And then the $33 million one, that one we bought in the middle of the pandemic in 2020, closing that in October. And then the $25 million one that was in Phoenix in Mesa, Arizona. 
Drew, we're recording in the third quarter of 2023, and it's been an interesting last four quarters since your most recent acquisitions with everything that's happened to interest rates. The Fed's been very active. I'm curious, how has the market volatility the past four quarters influenced your business plans on those properties that you acquired just before the Fed started raising rates? Well, fortunately, on all the deals we've done, except for one, it's been fixed rate debt. So the one where we had a floating rate loan that we bought an interest rate cap at, at closing. So I think we've been, I guess, fortunate with some of the decisions we made with sticking with fixed rate debt, even on a value add deal that we needed to do renovation on. We were able to get bank loans where it's fixed rate money. So even on some of the stuff we bought kind of at the tail end of the cycle in 2022, we have fixed rate loans on those three and a half percent interest and 4.25 percent across all those recent deals. There hasn't been too much operationally to change. I guess we've just continued on with our business plans where all the numbers still work. I think the biggest impact's just been on new deals. We haven't bought anything in over a year now. The last deal we put under contract was last May. We just recently put something under contract in Chicago that makes sense in today's times. It stabilizes to a seven cap and then we borrow in the low sixes. So that makes sense just by conventional real estate standards, positive leverage, and just kind of the basics, positive cash flow which has been really hard to find in the other markets we play in because all that's been uh, sort of upside down from a leverage standpoint where it's negative leverage going in if you're doing fixed rate or floating, really. Operationally, not much has changed in the past year. The Chicago and Phoenix, Arizona at large markets, are you seeing the same rent growth that you projected when you were underwriting these deals? Is everything else operationally continuing on? Expenses roughly the same as well? Yeah, every deal, it's got a sort of a story of its own, life of its own. And I think the Chicago ones, they've exceeded our expectations. Chicago right now, the last three quarters is the number one market for rent growth in the country. We underwrote pretty large tax increases on every deal we bought. And for the most part, that hasn't came to fruition either. It may in the future, but hasn't yet. So on the Chicago stuff, we're definitely ahead of projections on both expenses and on the revenue. I think the last Two years in Chicago depends on the building, but we've had 5 to 9% increases across almost all of our buildings in Chicago year over year now. So it's been a big increase. And then Phoenix, we were buying, unfortunately, as the growth was slowing there. So no, we underwrote, assuming the growth would continue. But fortunately, at least we were buying deals where they were going to stabilize to a 5 or so unlevered yield, so a 5% yield on costs. So we borrowed at three and a half percent or four and a quarter interest. So those are still cash flow positive and are working for us, but we assumed that the rents would be higher. I think the expenses are very predictable in Phoenix where it that hasn't had a run up in insurance like a lot of the other markets. And then the property taxes, there's a 5% per year cap on the assessed value increase. So then that's also very predictable. So really just been the revenue side on the Phoenix stuff, I guess, is what hasn't gone according to the underwriting at this point. So Phoenix is not growing as fast as projected rent growth. Chicago is growing faster. That's interesting because my follow-up question was going to be, and now I think it's a more interesting question. Drew, how have your business plans adapted to the changing circumstances of the last four quarters? Tell us what kind of hold period were you originally underwriting to? Has that changed? Has anything else changed about your strategy? last year? 
Well, the change for us is we moved into the Sunbelt a couple of years ago. So before that, I had only invested in the Midwest, but I wanted to be in more of these growth-orientated markets. And I still think that's the play long-term. The Sunbelt's really outperformed everywhere the last 10 to 15 years, especially in Texas and in Phoenix, where we're focused. But really, I think the changes, we just went back to what we were doing. Before going into Phoenix, the deals we were buying had very few moving pieces. We'd go in, we'd buy the deal. It would have positive leverage day one. We'd put fixed rate debt on it. Every property, the profile we bought was the rents were below market or it needed to be rehabbed and then the rents brought up to market. But most of them were just newer, nicer buildings being ran poorly. So there wasn't even any renovation to do. So we just went back to that strategy. And right now with where cap rates are in most markets, that's really only working in Chicago. So the new deal that we're working on buying took a long time to find. In the last year, we've underwrote over 400 deals. And then this is the only one that's made sense. And no surprise, it's because we're stabilizing to a high cap rate and have positive leverage. There's very few moving pieces. So I guess I could have answered your question shorter by just saying we've really focused on minimizing variables. So fixed rate debt, not having a risky business plan where you need to do five different things to hit your returns, or really we want to cut it down where we just need to do one thing basically or two. So there's a lot of uncertainty in the market. So better to not also take a deal that needs to do so many uncertain things to achieve your return. That makes a lot of sense given the deals you're underwriting right now, Drew. Were you underwriting to the five-year hold with your early 2022 and 2021 acquisitions? Yeah, we were. And yeah, I realized I didn't answer your question. So my apologies on that. But in the Chicago deals, we originally were underwriting just to 10-year holds. It was the business plan. And then we shifted that as we started going into Phoenix and other markets to a three to five-year hold is what we were doing more specifically, showing both scenarios, but then making sure people knew if something happened in the market, it definitely would be a five-year hold because we were putting five-year fixed rate loans on these. So we wouldn't need to sell in the near future if we did run into something where interest rates were running up. So yeah, five-year hold. And then definitely given what's happened in the market, we'll be holding all that time. You and I were talking before the interview started. I'm not sure how much of it we've caught up on during the interview. You've had two acquisitions in Arizona total. Actually, we've had five. Gotcha. If you were acquiring in 21 and 22 on a three to five year hold period, that would have you dispositioning possibly as early as 2024, 25. Do you think that's likely now, given everything that's going on? No, we presented them all as they most likely would be a three-year hold would be kind of upside case. Like if everything just keeps growing how it was, we could sell it early type of thing. So no, we're planning on holding the full five years. We have five-year fixed rate loans on those. One of them has a seven-year fixed rate loan. So we want to hold the properties and take full advantage of the low interest rates we have. That's below the treasury yields at this point. So it's a really good debt. So we wouldn't want to pay it off early. That makes a lot of sense. With the deals you're underwriting currently, what are your targeted returns? Depends on the risk profile. So for, let's say, a core plus deal, so like a newer, nicer property, we built like in the year 2005 or a new build, say in 2022, something like that, like gross deal level, five-year hold, we'd be looking for a 14% IRR as like the go, no-go range. I'd say depending on the leverage too, sometimes maybe as low as 13% we'd go. To, but on value add, we're still been underwriting to kind of what seems like everybody is 15% plus IRR on a five year hold. I think it's been hard to make anything pencil, especially if you're doing fixed rate 
debt. And then maybe your plan is to renovate the property after you're putting down 40 or 50% on some of these deals. And then if there's a renovation after you're doing that out of equity, you raise. So that really drives the returns down, having to put in so much equity. So that, and obviously interest rates being higher, that's why it's been so tough to get deals to pencil. We'll get back to the show with the first some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. Ever wonder how much of your personal data is out there on the internet for anyone to see? The answer is more than you think. Government records, social media posts, even your self-reported info, it's all being compiled by data brokers and sold to the highest bidders online. Anyone on the web can get your private details. This can lead to a higher risk of identity theft, phishing attempts, harassment, and unwanted spam calls. I hate those spam calls. Well, I recently found a solution, and this is a new service called Delete Me. When I registered with Delete Me, they reviewed nearly 1,500 online listings and found more than 40 data brokers that had my personal info, my address, social security number, even info about my relatives. It's creepy stuff. Right at this moment, Delete Me is working to remove my information from those listings so I can take back control of my personal info and have a peace of mind I deserve and you deserve. Delete Me is on a mission to safeguard your privacy, and right now you can get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeletemecom slash Joe. Use promo code Joe. Only way to get your 20% off is to go to joindeletemecom slash Joe. Enter promo code Joe at checkout. That's joindeletemecom slash Joe. Promo code Joe. Stay safe out there. Deciding how to invest your capital is more challenging than ever. That's why it's never been more important to partner with a company with a solid track record and that has thrived through various economic cycles. Companies like BAM Capital. BAM Capital is a trusted multifamily syndicator that has delivered a historical average of over 35% IRR with an average hold period of three and a half years. BAM Capital's never missed a preferred payment, never lost an LP's investment, and never called capital past the subscription amount. Are you primarily focused on investor relations and capital raising within general partnerships, or are you more of a solo GP, Drew? Solo GP. I haven't done any co-GP deals before, and every deal that I bought, I've found it and then done the work to acquire it. Until 2021, then I had hired some employees that work for me now. Brennerman Capital is not just me. We have a staff of five, and so most of those people work on the acquisition front. But no, we do every part of it. And so now we, we source the deals, we run it post-closing, we sign on the loans, we get the loans approved, we raise the equity. So we do every piece of it, except in some markets, we're not doing the property management. In Chicago, we're vertically integrated. And then also on those commercial deals you referenced up in Minnesota, we are as well. But we haven't vertically integrated in Phoenix, where we, we hire local management companies for that. And that's been a good decision on how we broke it up, because then we've been able to just focus more on the business plans and running them, pushing the deals along versus also trying to worry about staffing the properties and what happens when somebody quits, which we have all of our employees for the, on the Brenman Capital front are in Chicago. So I recently moved from Chicago to Austin. I think you had mentioned I'm in Austin now. So then that made sense more just to focus where just keep, we'll eventually build up enough scale in each of these markets we're buying in where I think we bring it in house, but at least for now, third party there. Yeah, and I know that you at least told me that you're looking into the Dallas and Austin markets, even though you don't have anything there yet. It makes sense to get local and have a better understanding of those markets. My question was really coming, Drew, from, well, I wanted to ask this. With how much more conservative the returns appear, the deal structures themselves, given how much capital has to be brought to the table to close, 
they lend themselves to conservative underwriting and to conservative investing. Are you seeing that the sentiment among your investors is shifting more conservative as well? Are, are your investors still looking to chase the highest IRR possible? Or are they more interested in being in more secure deals, debt with lower loan to values that require greater capital up front, but protect the potential downside by having lower debt? That's a great question. I think it's a mix. I think somehow our investor base, it just skews, it's been mostly word of mouth. So it just skews older from the older guys that started investing with me a long time ago, but they like the deals that don't have a lot of moving pieces, fixed rate debt, buying a newer, nicer, higher quality property. So I, if I had to put percentages on it, I'd say two thirds of our investors, they understand okay, we're putting more money down. We're buying a higher quality property. We have a way less risky business plan. We should be accepting a lower return for this. And it makes sense to do it in this environment, I think, where any of these deals, the returns, they start out, they're projected. And the riskier the deal, it's likely to go have a huge variance in the returns. If you think about whatever the most risky real estate deal would be, maybe buying an empty office building or something. I mean, yeah, a lot of investors will pile into that deal thinking, okay, the IRR is in the high 20s or 30% or whatever you'd need to attract capital for that. And that's just a projected return. And there's a lot of investors that do return chase and that's what they want to go into. But I think over time they see, well, okay, when the economy is great, yeah, maybe that did make the 30% it was projected. But in a tough economy, maybe that deal has a loss. So I think the investors I have for the most part, they realize that and think some of the stuff they talk more about is more risk management questions and then as well as focusing on cash flow. So that's why this Chicago deal has been a hit because we've been saying we get paid to wait is the saying. And it's the same thing I was saying in 2009 and 10, where it was, if the cash flow is there and the deal otherwise makes sense, like it's pretty compelling to buy now, get paid to wait. And then eventually the market will pick back up, interest rates will drop, cap rates will follow suit, and there'll be a good upside case there. But in the meantime, at least you're getting paid to wait, where in a lot of these growth markets, you're not getting paid anything to wait. I know I moved to Austin, but this market right now, everything's still below a five cap and then you borrow in the sixes, there's no cash flow and you're just still banking on all appreciation, which makes sense to have your portfolio in some of those deals when there's growth. But otherwise right now it's like you're investing a growth stock when there's no growth in the market or a tech stock. And this is time in the cycle is time to be in the income markets, income stocks. So I think that's how we've been looking at it. And that's been well received, but not by everybody. Some people, they got spoiled making 30, 40% per year kind of returns the last few years and they're still looking for that that makes a lot of sense drew are you ready for the best ever lightning round yeah let's do it what is the best ever book you recently read jim collins good to great so that's not necessarily a real estate book but he breaks down what separates a good company from a great company and i probably have learned more about business in that book than obviously than any other book but i mean than maybe anything so, so couldn't recommend it enough nice what is your best ever way to give back mentorship not any formal mentorship. I always learned most everything by asking others where I started out. I think I'd mentioned doing my first deal when I was pretty young. And then I mostly just figured out along the way how to do things, asking people questions. How did you do this? So sort of informal mentorship. I did have a formal mentor at one point through ULI and that was very helpful. So if someone's got a question, I do go out of my way to answer it. I have a former tenant actually who texted me before we started this and wants me to look at a eight unit she's looking at. And so, I mean, I'm happy to help. 
at least not underwriting the deal for her, but I'll, I'll definitely see if she's on the right track. Nice. Drew, on the deals that you have done, properties you've acquired, what's the biggest mistake you've made and the best ever lesson that resulted from it? Two come to mind. The first one, so on the second property that I bought, it was just a duplex and I was buying it direct from the seller. And again, I had no real estate training, if you will. So I didn't really even know about it. You're buying like more like a house, let's say. There's no due diligence period, or at least there's an attorney review period, I guess. So I didn't look into any of the zoning or how many bedrooms were legal or anything. And long story short, the way the deal got rented is it was rented out by the bedrooms. And one of the bedrooms turned out to be a den, which now in retrospect, this is like such a tiny problem having uh, bought 200 million of property. But at the time, this is my second deal. And this is a huge issue. I bought essentially a six bedroom duplex and one of the bedrooms is illegal. So a lesson on that is obviously do due diligence, but you have to look into are all the units legal? If there's leases signed by the bedroom, are all the bedrooms legal? So, I mean, obviously I looked into, is it a legal two unit, but I didn't think I needed to go through the city records and check how many bedrooms I had down in file. But actually on something like that, that's what I needed to do. The second one, we had an office building that we did not put the full common area load factor in, in a renewal. This is really in the weeds and not something I had done. So that we missed out on some square footage in this renewal that we should have added. We ended up getting it corrected in a subsequent renewal. So it didn't really cost us anything. That one, what's the takeaway? That's a higher expert. If we had a leasing broker on that renewal, we wouldn't have made that mistake. You know, that was the first office lease I had done myself and made a mistake on that. Drew, what is your best ever advice? Mindset. I'm not really sure how to word it, but one thing when I think about what's really helped me a lot is for whatever reason, I always thought I could do this where I would look at the other people that were doing the deals or I work for and I thought they were just like me. They are obviously all smart and everything and taking risks, but it wasn't like they all went to Harvard or two degrees from Stanford or anything. So I think a lot of business success is just your mindset where if you think you can do it, you can within reason. And I think I see a lot of people where they have limiting beliefs where they think they can't do it or they quit their job. They'll never get another one. When I quit my job, I figured worst case, I'll just go get the same job, but at a different company. So I think a mindset is a huge advantage, especially when you're on your own as an entrepreneur, you got to be mentally strong. Last question. Where can people get in touch with you? You can go to our website, brendamin.com. We have everything about our company, our portfolio there. We have a passive investing guidebook you can download. It's a hundred page guidebook on everything you'd want to know about passive investing. You can also sign up to be on our investor list there. I have my own podcast, The Brenda Min Blueprint. It's a real estate investing podcast. So that's everywhere you can get podcasts. And then at Drew Brenda Min on every social media platform. Drew, thank you. Best ever listeners, thank you as well for tuning in. If you've gained value from this episode, please do subscribe to our show. Leave us a five-star review and share this episode with a friend you know we can add value to through our episode today. Thank you and have a best ever day. Hi, Best Ever listeners. Joe Fairless here again. And one last thing before you go, would you like to receive a short weekly email with proven tips from experienced investors, free tools and resources, and a roundup of the week's most relevant news and Best Ever content? Well, if so, join the community of nearly 15,000 commercial real estate passive and active investors who receive the Best Ever newsletter. Just go to bestevercre.com forward slash access and you'll get the very next one. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, thank you for listening and have a best ever day.